Welcome back to a new episode of the Easy Languages podcast. This is Rita speaking. Today, I have the honor of receiving an exceptional guest to address a topic you have been many to ask about. What languages can we learn together? But let me first start by introducing our guest. Tim Kelly was raised in South Florida, where he learned his first additional language, Cubano, <laughs> Cuban Spanish. His polyglot journey began when he studied Portuguese, French, and German in Spanish while attending university in Colombia. During the past 48 years, Tim has traveled, studied at eight universities, and worked around the globe. In the process, he has been immersed in over 30 languages. His travels have taken him to 99 countries so far and include adventures ranging from deep in the Amazon rainforest to the peaks of the Himalayas. As a professor of cross-cultural management at universities in Japan, China and Thailand, Tim has lectured about his insights and research findings on foreign language acquisition and cultural adaptation. His research papers have received global recognition, constantly ranking within the top 2% of all papers worldwide on academia.edu. He became a Japanese citizen, the country where he spent most of his life, 42 years. Tim, welcome. Que bola contigo. Okay, gracias, muchas gracias. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm really, really excited. I mean, Me too. it's uh, the first time we have a scholar here with so much knowledge, you know, who can share so many things with us. <laughs> so thank you for coming. My pleasure. So in today's episode, we decided to address the topic from the perspective of East Asian languages, um, particularly languages with much more in common that uh, our listeners might have thought at first. Um, but before diving into this fascinating world of Asian tongues and why you can learn them together or one after the other, we'll talk about Tim's extraordinary journey with languages and the book he has written uh, about the journey uh, yet to be published in 30 languages. Let's start. So, Tim, tell me how it all started. Did you remember like a, a specific moment where you said, now I want to become a polyglot? Well, when I was around age six, I used to listen to languages on a shortwave radio. That was the only way you could listen to a lot of foreign languages. There was no internet, of course. And I was just fascinated by the sound of languages. And also, I used to look at National Geographic uh, articles and fascinated about various cultures. And uh, so... It was natural that I started to pick up Cuban Spanish because there are so many Cubans around, and we, we studied it uh, in school just once a week at first in elementary school. I got more interested in it, and uh, by the time uh, I was 18, I decided to go study in Colombia, and that's where I really my journey really started, uh, and I was studying uh, French, uh, Portuguese, and German, Uh, in Spanish, and uh, at that time I decided my goal is to learn all the major languages of the world, and I define that major as uh, having 50 million or more uh, mm -hmm. native speakers. Wow, that's that's incredible. So after you started learning in Spanish, which is amazing, German and uh, and French, uh, did you? And of course, you were still learning Spanish, even though, as you said, it was one of the strongest, like, and first foreign languages you learned in Florida already. Um, 
What was next? What did you decide to learn next? It was usually based on where I decided to uh, travel to and and uh, study. Uh, the f- next language was Slavic. It was a, a little bit of Slovenian because uh, I I met uh, another traveler in Bolivia, a girl from uh, Ljubljana, and learned a little bit of Slovenian. Um, but later. Uh, the following year, when I was studying in Geneva, Switzerland, in French, um, after I finished the uh, six months there, I went to uh, the former Yugoslavia uh, to uh, ride along the coast on a bicycle, and I realized that I should concentrate on, at that time, called Serbo-Croatian. And so uh, that was really my introduction to Slavic languages. And uh, since then, I've actually uh, studied all the Slavic languages, uh, but with a major concentration on um, Serbo-Croatian, Polish, and Russia, having been in the Soviet Union three times, and then two years in graduate school studying Slavics uh, in Poland. This is incredible. We have an expression in French where we say that you, I'm sure, know, au gré des rencontres. So, uh, you, you like, as soon as you met someone new, you wanted to know more about that person and you started learning the language. I find it fascinating, you know, you really want to connect to people, right? Yes, yes. Back then, I mean, this curiosity, uh, to satisfy the curiosity took a lot more effort than it does nowadays because you, even finding recording, of a language like Slovene or Serbo-Croatian would be difficult. And, uh, you know, you could play with your shortwave radio trying to find a broadcast. Uh, language materials, uh, you might have to go to certain libraries. This weren't readily available. So when you met somebody who spoke a, a language that seemed interesting, then, you know, you took advantage of it. Yeah, it was your chance, right? right. So when you look back at this fascinating and wonderful journey of yours, then you decide to write a book? So how did it come to your mind to write your memoir? So about three years ago, uh, just as COVID said, and a little before COVID, I, I um, decided that I wanted to uh, write my story and uh, translate into various languages first, just for my own benefit. Because what I would do is I would translate it. For, it started with Greek because I had been learning Greek. And uh, so I wanted to brush up on my Greek. So I started writing about myself in, in English and Greek and then showed it to my Greek teacher who would correct it and record it for me. And so I would use it for study. I love that. I have, having the text in both languages all checked out and then a native speaker recording it, I could listen to it. So many ways... Uh, that I can use that for uh, self-study. Mm-hmm. So I, then it just came, okay, no, I got to do the whole thing. I got to do, you know, a book. And uh, then I decided to uh, get, into, get into that long process. The first part was um, uh, I, I started writing and translating into 27 languages, and then I soon stopped and said, wait a second, I need to do, I need to work on the, the original, the English better. So I hired a professional editor, I interviewed a lot of editors, but this editor was uh, in the United States, but I found out it was South African. And um, and that sort of explains why I accepted all her suggestions. She had been grown up in a, she's an Afrikaans speaker. So, so English is actually sort of her second language, but you could call it native too, um, growing up with it. Yeah. But she has another perspective also. Yeah, it was a great interchange, and we completely rewrote the 
first part that I had done, and then I added, and that was like a 20 chapters, and I added 40 more for 60 chapters. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but some chapters were just uh, two or three pages, and the max there around eight pages, which gives a book uh, around 413 pages or 127,000 words in English. And then? Then I've been translating. So the ones that are done right now is uh, Italian and also Italian uh, audiobook has also uh, been finished. Then uh, Chinese is uh, getting, uh, will be done, is already written, now just being checked. Mm-hmm. And uh, other languages are, are, are coming. Um, so my idea is that People can study these languages using these materials. In other words, I'm going to sell them in individual languages, but also combinations. For example, if you wanted to learn Italian and uh, your reference language, mother tongue, or one you know well, or one, the one you want to study in is Spanish, then you can buy the book in Spanish and Italian or I also make it available in two volumes, Spanish Italian. I mean, I'm fascinated, and I love to hear the fact that you said just before this is the way you loved learning languages because you couldn't at the time at the time have access, you know, to easily to some resources. And now you're providing us and other people who might want to learn these languages or or some of them at the same time, you know, with a wonderful uh, content, which is your incredible journey, you know, and we'll be able with the audiobook um, to be able to learn those. So thank you. But my question is, when can we expect at least the Italian version, for example, to be published? So the audiobooks and the ebook. Uh, will be sold through the website. And I won't say the name of the website now because it's not done. But I, I, I think I might have it done uh, by the end of March when the um, Polygot gathering online is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a session that and hopefully talk about the book. Uh, but soon, in about a month or so. It- well, keep us posted uh, as soon as the website is ready. And you'll be more than welcome to come back here in uh, our podcast and talk more about languages. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I heard you talking about the Polyglot Gathering, right? Okay. The, well, there's a Polyglot Conference and the Polyglot Gathering. Um, the Polyglot Conference is is really the origin of these kind of conferences. Uh, so Richard Simcott... Richard Simcott and I and um, Luca... Calamparello, right? Yes. I, I propose that we attend a, an academic conference and do something, but it didn't work out. So Richard says he's going to make his own conference. So he did. Sort of in Budapest, then went to Beograd, then went to New York, and so on and so on. And the last time it went in person, well, in 2019, it was at my university here in Japan. And then, so the Polygot Gathering was originally started by Judith Meyer, who wanted to some, something to be in constantly in Europe and in, in not leave Europe. So um, while the conference goes around the world, um, the sent COVID uh, put both of these platforms online, and they they're continuing to do it online and in person. So I'll be in Poland in June. I'll be doing a presentation, and um, you can interact. And then there's just a lot of language practice, meeting people, other polyglots. Which is wonderful. Honestly, I can only uh, recommend these kind of events. So I'll add all these uh, in the show notes. Guys, you absolutely have to read the book as soon as it's published. And I'll be sharing everything you need to know, like the website, the links on Amazon and everything to buy it. And uh, and the audiobooks also. Tim's journey is just fascinating. And really, we know you're just a wellspring of knowledge. And I know you have so much to share with us. So you definitely are coming back as a guest here, but I think we can just dive in the, um, the topic for today and start the section number two. So, 
Tim, what are these languages we can learn together exactly? I'm going to talk about four East Asian languages uh, that I would recommend uh, studying together or, or, or not necessarily all at one time, but you know, your goal is to learn all four. Uh, and they are uh, the languages of the East Asian cultural sphere, is one way to say it, or the Sinosphere, Sino meaning China, or the Chinese cultural sphere, or finally, the Chinese character sphere. Okay, so with that Chinese character sphere, uh, we have the name, it, we have that name in the four languages. In Chinese, it would be Hanzi Wenhua Quan, where Hanzi is the character, and Wenhua is the culture, and Quan is the area. And so the other, for Japanese, it's Kanji Bunkaken. That's the way you read those characters. And in Vietnamese, it would be Han Te Van Hua Chue. And that's how you read those characters. That sounds a lot like Chinese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the Han Zi, Han Te. And then Wen Hua is uh, Van Hua. Van Hua. Van and then Chue. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's very uh-huh. close. And then for uh, Korean, you have Hanja. Uh, Hanja Mun Hua Hyun. So... Uh, that shows you that uh, the vocabulary of these languages uh, get into Already it. gives us a hint, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so I, my first question is, I mean, I can see they have a lot in common, at least in terms of vocabulary here, but are they from the same family? No, no, they're not. And, and that leads to a lot of people who are not really familiar with the languages to draw some faulty conclusions. Like I see sometimes discussions in polyglot groups. Somebody asks, if I learn Chinese, does that help with Japanese? Or if I learn Korean, does that help with Japanese? And then somebody will say, no, they're a different family. That doesn't answer actually the question. Yeah, and then I've seen people just draw some really uh, strange analogies. Yeah, it's like trying to uh, learn... Um, Maybe Russian in the fact that, you know, you, you, you've learned Bosque or something. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, uh, let me explain how, how, how they are related and how um, learning one helps, learning, helps with learning the others. Okay, so Chinese is a member of the uh, Sino-Tibetan language family. Um, and, uh, and not that, not that Tibetan is that much related to Chinese. It's a, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, is I wouldn't say, so I, I, I speak Tibetan fairly okay. I mean, I've been studying it for a while. Um, but I wouldn't say, oh, learn Chinese to make it easier to learn Tibetan. Definitely not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, so the Japanese is in the, uh, Japonic language family. Okay, so mm-hmm. it looks like it's, it's got its own family, all right? So does it include other languages? Well, it does, but they're, they're like the, the uh, Ryukyuan language. Ryukyu is the, uh, where Okinawa is, mm-hmm. you know, the islands below Kyushu. I live yeah. in Kyushu, the islands mm-hmm. below us. So Okinawa and the, and the other islands in southern Japan, they speak uh, languages related to Japanese, but are, are separate languages. And more and more, though, in modern day, people don't speak these as much. I mean, if you go to Okinawa and people, uh, the way they speak Japanese can be very hard to understand if they're speaking their local dialects because it's a mix between uh, Ryukyu and the standard Japanese. And then Korean, though, it's in the Koreanic language family. And they supposedly it's an isolate, okay, which meaning that it has no 
uh, no known generic relationship to any other language family. But, uh, okay, I don't want to argue about that, but I want to show, also talk about how close Japanese and Korean are to one another in, in more than just vocabulary. Okay. Um, and then finally, Vietnamese is an Austro-Asiatic language. And that's very large. And so uh, languages spoken in Southeast South Asia, Asia. Mm-hmm. yeah, in parts of South Asia. Um, so, but so they're not, they're not the same families. So they are clearly not from the same families, but they share things in common. And I guess this is related to their like, historical bonds. So Vietnam and Korea uh, both became tributary states of China. Different times uh, in their respective histories. But Vietnam first was first, and it, it became a tributary state to China during the Han Dynasty. So that is uh, 111 BCE. So for the, for the next thousand years until like uh, 999 or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, Vietnam was ruled by a series of Chinese dynasties as a, of a, as was a province, of, it was a protectorate. And so, although the Vietnamese maintained a, a distinct cultural and linguistic identity, they were heavily influenced by Chinese culture, and they had adopted uh, many elements of Chinese governance, education, and religion. For Korea, uh, so they became a tributary state during the Three Kingdoms period, later, the third century uh, in the current era, so about 400 years later, basically. And uh, when the Chinese Han Dynasty established foreign, formal relations with the Korean kingdom at that time, the, uh, uh, it was uh, Goguryeo. And the relationship between China and Korea varied over the centuries. So there were periods of direct control and then just influence alternating with periods of Korean autonomy. And during the Tang Dynasty, uh, that's like the 7th to, cen- to the 10th centuries, Korea was a vassal state of China, and they sent tributes to the Tang court. And then later, during the Yuan and Ming dynasties, Korea also maintained this uh, tributary relationship, you know, having to... Ming dynasty is the 16th century, right? Yeah, later on, the Yuan, Yuan and Ming dynasties, mm-hmm. all that period, right. Um, so Vietnam and Korea, and they remained, you know, these tributary states uh, for much of the history, but Japan only submitted to Chinese rule uh, from, was it 1404 to 1549? So very short period. But still, <laughs> but still there, there's a very strong ties, uh, some of it coming uh, off on China, coming through Korea, etc., you know, culturally and then, you know, linguistically. So I, I hear they're from different families, but they have still ties. And this historical ties you just explained to us maybe led to Chinese becoming the lingua franca in the region somehow? Right, exactly. The, the classical Chinese characters themselves. The classical Chinese became the lingua franca, but it's more of a written uh, lingua franca because they pronounce them differently. Um, and so the... Uh, Characters were used for cultural, scientific, and economic exchange. Uh, so they were the ha- Chinese in there, the Hansa, yeah, and in Japan they be- they were uh, adapted as kanji, in Korea as hanja, and Vietnam as uh, chihan. But each country uh, started uh, to move away from just using uh, Chinese character over their history. So how did it evolve, for example, in Vietnam? Okay, so in, in Vietnam, uh, since the beginning of the uh, 
Chinese rule in, in 111 BC. Literature, government papers, scholarly works, religious scriptures, all these were in, in uh, classical Chinese, which they called Chi Han. So the Han meaning, you know, uh, Han the dynasty. Han ethnicity. Oh. Right, right, exactly, Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we say Han Chinese, uh, that's what we mean, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an ethnic, uh, it's a term in English, for sure, for ethnic group. Uh, what happened in Vietnam is that uh, they started use. They made their own characters. They added their own characters based on these Chinese characters, and they called it Chu Chu Nom. And the Chu Nom, uh, it's very interesting for to show them to Chinese people <laughs> and try to t- get them to guess what it means. Yeah, that reminds me of per- like Persian Farsi. Uh, I could read Arabic, but it's really. Weird for me, or Urdu, for example. I'm like, I can recognize yeah, yeah, the yeah. character. I mean, the letters, yeah, but yeah. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Why did they put them together that way? So I guess it's kind of the same feeling, maybe the Chinese have. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, sort of like that. But the thing, the, uh, the difference there is that, uh, and and I have the same. I've studied some Arabic and Farsi, and and so I, in Urdu, and you know, so I speak Hindi, so I can actually understand the Urdu when I read it like that. I would say the difference is is that it's not about pronunciation. It's just about, it's just in the uh, writing itself, ideogram itself, mm. right? In the in the character itself that you see elements. We see elements of things like so. I know it, I don't know how familiar the listeners are with you know uh, Chinese characters, but uh, they are, they have radical and then they have uh, certain parts to them. Each one has a meaning, sound? yeah, and mm-hmm. sometimes the sound. But for example, you draw a tree. And then you draw a man leaning against a tree, and that means to rest. Uh, you put a you put a sun behind a tree, and that means the east. Okay, so yeah, there are combinations. So a woman under the roof is safety. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I mentioned this, but when I say Chinese, I mean Mandarin Chinese. But I really don't like that term. Uh, I like saying standard Chinese or. If I'm speaking English, oh, Putonghua. Putonghua, yeah, yeah. The common it's speech, okay. I'd say. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know because it, actually Mandarin means Guanyi, uh, and nobody's, which means the, the, the language of the rulers. And they, it's Mandarin mm-hmm. because mandah from Portuguese, those who lead, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Mandarin. So let's call it standard Chinese. Yeah, we'll call it standard Chinese. Yeah, because because I, I consider other forms of Chinese like Cantonese, Hakka, etc. as individual languages. Um, yeah, I mean, if you consider German, if you consider German and English two different languages, then you have to consider so-called standard Chinese and in, in, in Cantonese as different languages. So uh, they, what the what the Vietnamese did though is they they used this Chu known from the 13th to the 19th centuries, but then the first Portuguese Catholic missionaries introduced a Latin alphabet in the 17th century. But after that, uh, it got refined um, by uh, Alexander de Gaulle. So leave it to the French to refine something. And they revised the Romanized writing system that's still in use today. And it's called the uh, is Ngu is a word for Ngu Ngong, is a for language. So Guok uh, is a country, country language, Guok Ngu. And so that was the case of Vietnamese and Chinese. I mean, Japanese, uh, they created uh, Hiragana and Katakana, which are... Uh, syllabaries of 47 uh, characters. So not an alphabet, but a syllabary because they're phonological units, which when we write in uh, a Western language with 
Roman alphabet, for example, we have to write two letters besides when you, besides the you know the five vowels, we have to write ka, ma, or tsu. So tsu, we have to write three letters, tsu. What is the difference between hiragana and katakana for people who are not you know familiar with Japanese? Okay, so they're both kana in general. Okay. And then kana changes the pronunciation gana after hira, hiragana, katakana, but in general called kana. Kana, uh, hiragana is used uh, for grammar and for words that you don't write in characters for some reason or another, for like children or just words that generally are not written um, with characters. Uh, and uh, katakana is normally used for foreign words, loan words, or like in comic books to show boom, bang, you know, onomatopoeia, things like that. Uh, but you can, you can use anyone you want and somebody's going to understand it. It's just going to look a little bit weird. <laughs> yeah, you can even, you can even what they could use romaji, Roma, Rome. Okay, so you can use Latin letters too. Oh, and so Jeff, basically when, every day when I look at things around me, uh, yes, I'm in Japan, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to see things written in all four. Kanji, hiragana, katakana, and romaji. But do you think that for somebody like a beginner in that language, it could be real, dif like a difficulty, very complex to get? Or quickly, do you understand kind of the use of these um, different writing systems? Okay, well, I would say that Japanese is the most challenging and difficult writing system, followed by Chinese and then like Tibetan. All over the world? Like in all languages? Yeah, all the world. Wow. All over the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All writing systems. Because obviously, you have to learn the most in order to uh, read Chinese and Japanese. Why do I say Japanese is more difficult? Because uh, in the case of Japanese, there are multiple readings for the characters. There are some also. Douyinzi is what they say in Chinese for more than one reading. Dou, you know, more than one, uh, multiple readings. But Japanese, Japan, Japanese goes crazy. For example, se, which can mean like to be born, to live, uh, what you would use to say um, draft beer, oh. <laughs> many raw, <laughs> things like that. Okay. That, that has over 30 pronunciations, depending on how you're using it. Okay. Wow. And then when it comes to names and things like that, um, for example, uh, you can write your name. If your name uh, with, with two characters, it can be pronounced either uh, as... Uh, Yamato mm -hmm. or Daiwa. And Yamato is an old name for Japan. Mm -hmm. And then Daiwa is the... So the Dai, the first letter, is big. Uh -huh. And the second one is Harmony. Oh. So Big Harmony oh. is an old name for Japan. Uh -huh. And uh, so if that, if that is your last name, it, your last name might be Daiwa or it might be Yamato. <laughs> mm, wow, this is fascinating. So I'm, I'm just guessing after, I mean, they, they kind of adapted the, the Chinese written system to their own, you know, use and you know, throughout history, of course. And But I guess they share also, from what I uh, heard from the beginning, um, a lot of vocabulary. Do we know how much do they share? Well, okay. In general, I would say that approximately uh, 50 to 60% of Japanese, Korean, and Vietnamese vocabulary originates from Chinese, the Sino vocabulary, Sino meaning China. Wow, yeah. that's a lot. But however, the percentage of these uh, Sino words, Sino origin words, and modern day everyday usage is less, okay? Uh, maybe it could be 20%, 30%. But if you're reading something more sophisticated, if you're reading about economics or history or 
or, or the newspaper, etc. The higher the number? The higher the number of words. Uh, didn't mention, but Korea, uh, Korea, um, they started to uh, use their own uh, writing system, uh, Hangul. And uh, that was developed in 1443 to improve literacy, and it became the official writing system. So it's totally unrelated to the characters. And then in modern-day Korea, uh, especially now, young people are not so good at reading and writing characters because they use a lot less. I mean, maybe only in newspapers and such or certain names, so... It's like in Turkey, maybe, like people who kind of, like the generation, I mean, this is like closer to us, but the generation that used to Ottoman uh, Turkish, mm -hmm. like with the, the, the Arabic script, and nowadays, which completely different, so they would not be able to read, kind of. Is it like uh, something similar? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good analogy. It's, 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 it's similar to that situation. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they still, they learn some. But so the difference is, is that they're mixed, and you don't mix, you know, the Arabic script with modern-day Turkish script. But you, but you do mix in, in Korean. When you read the newspaper, they're mixed together. So that, you know, yeah, that's a, it's just like Japanese. When you're reading it, it's got hiragana, katakana, and kanji together. But... Uh, depending on the book you're reading, the kanji might be 70%. Well, actual letters less because when you write something in, in hiragana, it's a lot yeah. longer. <laughs> so you have one character and that could be, that could be three or four uh, hiragana. Wow, that's crazy. I, I mean, I'm just amazed. Even though it's not um, so strong, I mean, the, the number like of uh, shared vocabulary or that is coming originally from Chinese isn't so high when it's uh, when it comes to daily conversational vocabulary. Uh, I'm still amazed because these languages are not part of the same family and they still share so much. Uh, we understand now that you explained to us about all the things they shared in history. And I see that the influence is coming from China towards them. But often we think of it that way but is there a way that there is also because it's an exchange you know a cultural exchange a language exchange is there any influence for example from Ch Japanese into Chinese that we don't expect that people might learn about today oh yes 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 there, there definitely is uh, and what happened was uh, the Japanese started uh, using Chinese characters a little bit differently Uh, to arranging them differently to to uh, express modern terms, for example, uh, in in terms of uh, the telephone, the Chinese had a different word, which was just uh, imitation of the of the sound telephone, and uh, the Japanese made a, a word called denwa, den so electric and wa speak, okay, electric speak, and so then everybody adapted it. <laughs> So we have, uh, you know, in Chinese, they had different words. Then they started saying, Dian Hua, so Dian Hua. And then the Vietnamese said, Dian Tuai. And then the Koreans said, Zhong Hua. So Japanese started influencing Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese with the vocabulary through these, what they call, Wase Ego. Wa is for Japan, Yamato that character harmony, the big harmony. So wa, say means to, means to produce something, to make. And kan for kanji. And then go for, uh, in this case, be language or word. Okay, so wase, wase kango, uh, character words made in Japan. And then exported. And they also things like uh, concepts, uh, Western concepts, like a revolution, kakume, 
or like democracy, minshu. So how, how would you say kakume, which is Japanese in, in Chinese, for example? Okay, so it's geming. So the ge is the first part, and the ming is the, the second one, the second character, geming, kakume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've been speaking a lot about the influence uh, from Chinese um, vocabulary and, of course, cultural you know, uh, aspects into the other cultures like Japanese, Korean, and Vietnamese, uh, and so on. And what about the structure? You talked to me about a relation between Korean and Japanese. Is there any relation in terms of sentence structuring? Okay, so, yeah, so we, we have the sign of vocabulary, okay? And um, so besides these cognates originating from Chinese, uh, Japanese and Korean grammar are at least, at least 90% similar. Wow. So first of all, bo- both are SOV, okay, subject, object, verb, um, which is majority, majority of languages in the world are this way. And uh, so that's, but that's just the beginning. Okay, so Chinese and Vietnamese are not there. Chinese is generally uh, like, you know, subject, verb, object, but it doesn't have to be. That's a long discussion. Uh, Vietnamese is pretty much strict uh, um, subject, verb, object. Okay, so they're both SOV, but the important thing is that they use grammatical particles for linking words in a sentence. And, And, yeah, of course, word order is somewhat fixed, but what's very important is these particles which indicate uh, what the subject is, uh, what is the direct object, the indirect object, and so on. But more importantly about the subject, because Korean and Japanese are both subject-focused language languages. So they both have, like in Japanese, you're going to have a wa, major topic, and then a ga, a subtopic. Okay, and so it's what ties the idea, uh, the ideas together in a sentence, and it's. I mean, it takes too long to explain everything, but let's just simply say that that's perhaps the most difficult thing for people studying Korean and Japanese is to uh, figure out when you're you going to use wa and ga. <laughs> so, can you give us an, an example, like a, have a sentence in Japanese and Korean, so we can compare them? Okay, so. In the, I'm going to say a sentence in Japanese, which means um, I studied uh, um, at I studied Japanese at home. Okay, so watashi wa watashi I wa makes me the main subject. Ie de, so ie is home, and de is where something takes place. Nihongo o, and Nihongo is Japanese, and o indicates uh, that it's a direct object. Benkyo shimashita. And then benkyo shimashita means I studied. Okay? So, watashi wa ie de nihongo o benkyo shimashita. So, Korean is going to do the same type of particles. They're going to, it's going to be chunun, and then the nun is showing that uh, cho is the uh, subject. Mm-hmm. And then jip is going to be at home. Jip and eso. Eso is like the de. Okay? So, Jeep uh, eso is iede. Mm-hmm. And then ibono is a Japanese language. And rr, rr is a equivalent to nihongo o, o, showing the direct object. And in cases, they have rr. Okay? Then kombu heseo. 
is I studied. So we can just simply, same exact order of words, same placement of grammatical particles. But, but what's, really, what's really interesting, though, is that they, these two languages have a very complicated honorific system. And, they're, and they mirror one another. That will be so interesting to talk about this today in our after show. Uh, okay. And then so far as Chinese grammar is concerned, so, so, so some people mistakenly believe that Chinese and English grammar are similar. But Chinese, because you know, it follows the SVO, the subject-verb-object patterns. But unlike English, Chinese relative clauses precede the noun they modify, like other noun modifiers. Uh, so what that means is there's usually uh, there's usually no relative pronoun in a relative clause. Thus, the man who came is came man, lighter than. Yeah, the man who came, you don't have the who. The man who came, so you have to say came man, lighter And then uh, the book I bought in Tokyo becomes I in Tokyo bought book. So how would you say that in Japanese? So this is the same in Japanese. We do it the same way except that uh, we have um, postpositions instead of prepositions. So you say, I, Tokyo, in, bought, bought book. book. <laughs> so both in Korean and Japanese, it would be, you know, in English translations, it would be like that, okay? I, Tokyo, in, bought book. If I wanted to start, and I know no Chinese, no Japanese, no Korean, should I start with one in particular to make it easy for myself? Or do you think it doesn't change anything? It doesn't matter. I, I think that uh, depends on your... Uh, history up till now, how you studied languages. Did you did you learn Spanish, Portuguese at the same time, or Italian? Did you? Or, um, Let's say I'm comfortable learning languages together already. I, I I learn a few, like all the listeners are, you know, language enthusiasts. So what would I do? In that in that case, maybe Chinese and Japanese together. Which one you actually start with? I think should be determined by which one you think you're going to use first. So, are you going to take a trip to China or Japan or Korea or whatever? But put that aside, just from purely the characteristics of the language. Um, if you if 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 you uh, start, you can start with any of them and continue. But uh, if you start with Chinese, then you're getting used to tonal language. If you don't know a tonal language, uh, you're getting learning how to read the characters. Um, And then if you, with the Japanese, you're learning the grammar, that's the same kind of grammar that's also used in Korean. Yeah, so thanks a lot. This is like already an amazing tip. Uh, but basically, we know that, I mean, if you're interested in Asian languages, East Asian languages, in these languages in particular, know that you have a big um, head start if you know, for example, Chinese or Vietnamese or Japanese or Korean. But for now, we'll be keeping on talking for our patrons and supporters and talking more about the honorific system in Japan and Korea and much more. So join us if you want. And uh, until then, we will be waiting for you to come back <laughs> and come and pay us a visit and talk to us in, in this podcast. Uh, if you've never been to East Asia... Uh, you, I'm sure you'll find the languages and cultures fascinating. And uh, so start learning and pay us a visit over here. And we wish you all the best with your book. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great time. Yeah, well, bye-bye and talk to you next week, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>